1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come evil strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, indwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege of being able to turn to your word and to explore it one verse at a time and to have hearts that are willing to have you change them, Lord. And so we want to not only be hearers of the word but doers of the word. We pray, Lord, that you would work in our hearts through these verses. Lord, we, we are very much looking forward to being further conformed into your son's image through them. So we ask that your spirit be our teacher. We commit this time to you. We pray you'd set it aside for your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I have so much enjoyed this book, and it is so exciting to be able to go through a book that really lays out what the church is supposed to be about. I've said this almost every week, that the church is not uh, to be just anything that the leader or pastor wants it to be. God has set forth Acts 2.42, Ephesians 4, and other places that dictate exactly what the church is supposed to be about. And then there's some very specific things that's unique to each church that the Holy Spirit leads the leadership to engage in that doesn't stray from those essentials, but uh, adds a different kind of nuance and flavor to that ministry because each individual fellowship is different in many ways because the people are all different and the church is the people. So that's something that as we've seen as we've gone through this book we've seen that he's laid it out and what it does is it produces great comfort in our hearts because when we recognize that a church is really uh, being overseen by the holy spirit and being uh, you know in line with how god has set things up according to his word and the bible is the authority in a church it brings comfort to our hearts and God uses that. And so as we've seen Timothy uh, learn these things from Paul, it, it's instructed him that he's not free just to make any decision that he wants related to the church. 
And so Timothy had to follow these prescribed things, and any uh, biblical leader will, will do the same. So I've thoroughly enjoyed that. I'm kind of selfish, you know, because I'm a leader and a pastor, and this is written to, a, you know, a pastor. And so, uh, you know, I'm just venting my enjoyment here. I've really, really enjoyed this. Now, he says in verse 1, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. So he begins with speaking about bondservants here. He's already spoken about how men, women, I mean, older men, older women, younger men, uh, all these groups, uh, elders, which we saw last week, all these different relationships. He's giving Timothy specific wisdom regarding how to treat those different people, groups, or different ages, and also how to treat elders, and how to, you know, now he's getting into bond servants, he's going to get into how to uh, deal with and how to instruct and encourage the wealthy, and, and so he's going to cover really those two things, and he's going to give a warning, as, we're, as we've already read, regarding our desire to be wealthy, and to, to seek after those things. Now, wealth uh, isn't bad in and of itself, but the desire to be wealthy and going after those things to the neglect of what God's word says and to the neglect of our specific calling in life is detrimental to us. And so we're not supposed to seek after those things, but as we're good stewards, God can bless us, obviously, and he blesses those that have an open hand. What I mean by that is they have an open hand for God to put things in and they have an open hand for God to move on them to to release those things into his kingdom, to not hoard uh, things on themselves, hoard life on themselves, because God has called us to be conduits or vessels through whom he can bless others. That's why he makes, he allows people to be wealthy, not supremely for their benefit whatsoever, but it's for to, uh, to bless others. But we have a different uh, idea as we'll, as we'll get into. So he starts with these bond servants. These, there were 30 million slaves in the Roman Empire, very prevalent. Uh, in that culture. And so here, and sometimes people say, well, how come God didn't just denounce slavery? Why didn't, why didn't uh, the Holy Spirit lead Paul to say, you know, it's wrong and you shouldn't be engaged in it and all those things? Well, God knows that it's wrong. He's, he's, he freed the slaves. I believe this. Let's see. What, oh, yeah, Egypt. Yeah, he freed slaves. You know, he's not for slavery. But He's ministering and he's, and he's giving instruction and wisdom related to their, their current situation. How are they supposed to function within this situation here? And so the question for a slave would be, because many, 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 many Christians in the early church were slaves. So the, he has to deal with this issue for a slave to know, and he's going to do it through Timothy, because Timothy's the, the, the leader there in that church. How am I supposed to conduct myself in this relationship, I have a master and I'm a slave. How am I supposed to function in this? And, and you know, how am I supposed to conduct myself? How, how hard am I supposed to work? Oh, there were all kinds of standards in, in that time of how, how much a slave should work. And here we have slaves now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit. They have the author of the book inside them. And here they're, they're need, they need to be guided about related to how they should function, how they're supposed to uh, you know, be regarding their relationship with their masters. Now, God knew he was going to take care of slavery. I mean, it still exists today. I'm not saying it's totally eradicated. But as, a, as the main, uh, you know, kind of way things are set up in cultures, it's not predominantly the main way that things uh, occur in cultures. And he, and he knew that he was going to deal with those things, but he had to give instruction related to how things currently were. So he wasn't dodging it. He's not pro-slavery. He says there in verse 1, it's a yoke. You know, he's not minimizing uh, the, the pain of it and all of that. But one thing we need to know is that any context in which we find ourselves, Christianity works. Christianity is functional regarding whatever socioeconomic place we find ourselves, whether we're, uh, you know, an, an employer or an employee or if we find ourselves as a slave uh, in another country or whatever, uh, Christianity is relevant and it works. And there's, there's ways that we can function and be Christ-like in any context. So Christians are called, to, and this is kind of the application for us, is, is you know, workers and employers and employees and so forth. And so Christians are supposed to work hard. We're supposed to be hard workers. And, and so because this admonition was received back then, slaves that were believers... And you can see this, and it's documented in, in church history. 
in a secular history, that, that Christian slaves were more valuable. They went for more on the market because they did heed this. Because the master didn't have to worry that the Christian was going to do a good job because the Christian's master was someone else besides him or her. The Christian's master was the Lord Jesus. And so they worked as unto the Lord. So it didn't matter if the master was watching at the time. They were going to do what's right. They didn't have to be supervised. They didn't have to, to uh, you know, be micromanaged to the nth degree. And so they were more valuable. And because the reason for this in verse 1 and you see it by the word, so that. He says, so that the name of his doctrine may not be blasphemed. If Christians remained lazy, because usually we're lazy when we start out as unbelievers, <laughs> usually. There's exceptions to that. There's workaholics that are unbelievers, I know that. But the, the natural proclivity for our sinful nature is to be a blame shifter and to be lazy and to uh, take the easiest path of resistance. That's just how it works, usually. Not always, but usually. But God knew that if Christians r- remained that way or became that way, the name of God and his doctrine would become blasphemy. And it's important for us to see there's a direct correlation between our work ethic and God's name in this world. That's, that's good, good for us to see as believers. There, there is no misunderstanding. People don't have a disconnect when they see our lives regarding our, how our work ethic. They know exactly that there should be a connection. Unbelievers seem to know it more than anybody else, you know, because they watch our lives. But God's reputation is important to him. Really, the only time in, in biblical history where he allowed his name, he did things that would result in his name not being lifted up, was when his people, the Jews, were were serving false gods, and he would discipline them, up, even up to them being captured and taken away and so forth to these other nations. He was willing to have his name be blasphemed to discipline his children because of his commitment to his, ch- his children. And so that's really the only time. But his name is important to him. We sing that song, Thy, you know, Your Great Name. And it's not talking about just a, a, a name like our names. It's talking about his character, his essence, who he is. When you say, that man has a good name, you're not saying you're impressed with the name John. <laughs> you're saying he has a good reputation, and, and God has a name all through. We're praising his name. We even did it this morning. We're praising who he is, his character, everything that that represents, and that's important to God. Isn't it important to you, your name? You like people maligning your name? God his name is very important, his character. And so when we don't do the things that we're supposed to do, and specifically our work ethic, then there's a big disconnect there, and uh, people see it. And so we can do this thing in our minds where we can think, well, it really doesn't matter that people don't make that connection. They do make that connection. It's very important that we, that we work hard and we are responsible because unbelievers, first of all, are watching. They're very Once we say we're a Christian, they're like put the binoculars on or put the microscope, bring the microscope out. They're looking for every little thing. Now, obviously, some of that has to do with them providing an excuse for themselves. But there's plenty of legitimate issues that unbelievers have, unbelievers have had for, uh, related to believers' work ethic in the, in the workplace. And it, it, it says, well, how can you be indwelt by the Spirit of God and, and what you believe is true if you live in contradiction to what, you, you, what we know what God's about? And so that's very important. And so when we are lazy, we're not dependable, and we're, you know, we, even worse yet, steal, or we're, uh, we don't do the things we're supposed to do, we're not submissive, all these things that he works in our hearts for every Christian to, to be engaged in, regardless of our job or, or, or our place in life, sometimes he has to bring, you know, 10 more Christians in that person's life that are the opposite of us, that, are work, that work hard, that are consistent, that are, their word means something, they're faithful and all that, just to undo the damage that we've done because we haven't been consistent. So the most reliable people in this world, the most hardworking people, should be believers. But it also affects Christians. And this is what most Christians, including myself at times, forget, is that our lives being faithful to what God's called us to do, up to even, you know, in in your place of work, it affects other believers. How does it do that? Well, they see our lives and they see us not being faithful, and it provides discouragement for us. 
because we know that it's, it is hurting other, what the other people see the Lord and his name and his reputation, and that grieves us. And then it can provide a temptation for us to do the same. So people are coming to conclusions about our God based on our work ethic and how hard we work. And it's not just unbelievers that's, that's at risk here. We're hurting people in the family. Uh, by the way that we work and so forth. And, and sometimes people get, you know, they get real rebellious or stiff-necked or they don't want to be, you know, exhorted when another Christian says, hey, I saw that. You took a 20-minute break. You know, not that we're the, you know, the rule police or whatever, but we should be able to receive exhortation when we're falling short. We need to be thankful when other believers take the chance or take the risk of saying something difficult to us because we're not living up to that. We should be thankful when another believer says, hey, I noticed this. What's going on? <laughs> you know, I saw you with that Christian fish on your car and you're driving 90 miles an hour. Not good. You know, or whatever it is, especially in the workplace as well. How many of us have seen Christians or professing Christians be a bad witness at, at our jobs? Raise our hands. A good amount of us. A good amount of us. So there should be no shortcuts. Don't be afraid to exhort other believers, by the way, in a spirit-directed, loving, appropriate way. But don't be afraid to say, look, we're both believers. You're doing this, this, and this. Now, you can't judge whether or not you should say something based on their reaction. You have to judge it based on if the Holy Spirit's leading you to do it. Because they may not like what you have to say, even in a loving, appropriate way. But they're still supposed to, you're still supposed to say it. And so that's very important. Now, he touches on verse 2 another issue. Uh, Christian masters. He says, and those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. Here's the situation. First, we talked about uh, a master that's an unbeliever. And so you're a slave, and how do I function within that context? But now it's a little bit different. Now this is a mass. Remember, you have people getting saved that are, that are slave owners, that are slaves themselves, and it's this awkward position that they found themselves in because now they have to function in that. Now you have someone that has an equal standing uh, before God. They're both indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Both of them have God's promises that are true. They're on their way to heaven. God's provided all things that pertain to life and godliness for both of them. They're equal, in equal standing, but now they're in this situation still. And they couldn't just, if you're a Christian master, you know, I'm sure many of them stopped doing that if they had the opportunity. But there's a process for that. God working in their lives, God changing the economic ways that things are done and all of that. And so he's saying to them, uh, these, these slaves, don't despise them because they're brethren. Because the slaves could say, they're Christians. They're my brother. I see him in church. And by the way, in church history, a lot of these slaves were elevated to the level of leadership, but the slave owners weren't. So now they could be in the same church, and then you have an elder that's a slave, and then he's overseeing the spiritual uh, health of the, of the slave owner. Just think how awkward that is in a, as, at, a, at a church. <laughs> but those things happened. And so here Paul's having to deal with all these things to help Timothy know how to navigate these things. And so he says, don't despise them because they're brethren. What's the solution there in the middle of verse 2? Serve them. That's what he's called all of us to do, is to be servants. So just because they have masters still doesn't mean they don't get to be served. And so you need to work hard for them, even though you may be at a different place in the body of Christ than them, uh, related to the church, you still need to serve them. And he gives the motivation there. He says they're, because they need to be benefited, they're believers and they're beloved. These masters, they're loved by God and they're believers in Jesus Christ. And, and so that's important. And then he tells Timothy, teach and exhort these things. And he has to tell him to do that because he may not have been willing to do that naturally. It's hard to do. He has to pastor up and uh, do the hard, necessary thing. Now, Paul begins to speak once again about people that would reject this message, namely these false teachers that he's spoken about before. And he says in verse 3, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. So Paul is warning Timothy that these, there would be others who wouldn't receive this instruction. They would kind of stiffen their necks, as the Old Testament describes. 
They wouldn't be teachable. And they, were, they would teach falsely the opposite of what he is saying. And so he's warning them uh, regarding this. And don't be surprised by this. And he says, if they're like that, then this is their true condition. No matter what they appear to be on the outward appearance. The reality is, their heart is, that, you know, that Paul's revealing to Timothy by the Spirit, is that they're proud, they know nothing, and they're obsessed. And so he starts with this pride here. Now, the definition of biblical pride is to be to see yourself above. And so that's a, a danger for all of us. And the first thing that pride does is it, in, it incapacitates us to see it in ourselves. That's why we depend on other people in the body of Christ to help us. And of course, we depend on the Holy Spirit to reveal that to us. But it inoculates us against seeing the very problem of, of pride. And so these leaders were all about that. They're all about being proud and and. Uh, the worst kind of pride is the kind of pride that sees itself above the word of God. Would you agree with me? That's the worst kind of pride. And these false teachers were just, no, I don't, I don't receive this instruction. And basically what they're saying is, I know better than God's word. Now the application, first of all, is to leaders. Leaders can't believe, you know, have this, this stand where they're saying that they are above and they know better than the word of God. That's, that you're a danger to the body of Christ if that's the case. But it's true for all of us. We can't be proud and think that healthy doctrine is something that's negotiable or we know better. And it requires all of us to be humble and to be teachable. And, and so he comes in with this clarity and says that they're proud. But also notice he says they know nothing. False teachers usually tout themselves or promote themselves as very knowledgeable. In Paul's day, they, they had letters of recommendation that they would carry around saying, so-and-so vouched for me and that I'm a scholar and I'm this and that. And Paul doesn't have those papers, so he doesn't know what he's talking about and, and all these things. And they, they always talk about their seminary, seems like, or the Bible school they went to or all the training or how long they've studied the Bible. They're always talking about those things. They're impressed with what they know. That's a dangerous person in the body of Christ. But God's assessment of them is that they know nothing. <laughs> Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. So first we have to have a fear of God, a reverence, a respect for God. And that's the beginning process of learning something. And if we don't have that, and part of that is recognizing who he's set up to lead. So these men, they didn't recognize Timothy's calling. They were despising his youth potentially. And they don't recognize that that's the one that God has called. And so they have to receive what he uh, says and, and how he leads. Now, the word obsessed there in verse 4 is, means to be sick or diseased. It means to be obsessed in a sickness. So he's saying that they're sick and, and they, they infect others with being, by being a, you know, a person that disputes and has, is argumentative over words. And, and then from that, you know, he says... That look what, look what the result of it is. Envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. And so that's the result. That's what comes from that kind of heart. And the end of verse 4, he says that from which come envy, strife, reviling, and evil suspicions. And as I mentioned, those things come from that heart. And so we have to guard against that. And he says, useless wranglings of men, verse 5, of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from which withdraw yourself. That's very important for us to see because that's a teaching in the body of Christ that if you're godly and if you say the right things, confess the right things from God's word and you give a certain amount of money, especially to them, the people that are teaching that, that godliness is a means to financial gain. And verse 5 contradicts that. And he says, true wealth is godliness with contentment, as he says in verse 6. And that's, that's something that we need to see. Because we are tempted in so many ways in this culture by material things. I believe there's going to be a, a, a worldwide depression eventually. I don't know how long it'll be you know, drawn out or, or how long it'll be until that happens. But I believe that will happen, that there'll be a worldwide depression. And God's people need to be prepared for that. We need to be prepared. And, and part of that is seeing what's coming, and another part of it is living within our means and getting out of debt and all these things that are biblical and being good stewards. And so 
what Timothy's warning, being warned against is you could fall into this trap because leaders can feel that they are immune to these things. And if, if they're so immune, Paul wouldn't have said it to Timothy. You don't, be, don't fall into this trap, this trap that godliness is a means to gaining. And, and he says, I'll show you who really is wealthy. True wealth is godliness with contentment. That's what God's aiming at in each one of our lives. But how much time do we spend planning and arranging things and considering things and educating ourselves and learning about and all the, all the things that focus on the opposite of that, to not being content, to try to get as much as we can. And we live in a very wealthy culture. And so we have to be very careful because uh, we have this trap that's set for us that we think if we just have this, then we'll be happy. We just have this. And so much, so much of the time we're trying to find comfort. We're trying to find, uh, you know, ease and all these things that we think God must be for <laughs> in, our, in my life. But his goal is something different. And you're going to be frustrated, and I'm going to be frustrated in our Christian walk if we keep thinking that God has a goal that he doesn't necessarily have for our lives. His goal is for us to grow in godliness and, and contentment. And if we're spending all of our time trying to get wealth and, and, and serve our flesh and spend time on making our lives the most comfortable, easy lives and enjoy, joyful lives as we possibly can as far as the world standards, we're going to always be fighting against what God's working in our lives to accomplish. God doesn't want that. He wants us to feel like we're accomplishing that which he has called us to. And that is godliness, godliness, godliness. How much time do we spend investing in godliness and being content versus investing in all these other things. Think about where you spend your money. Think about what you spend your time thinking about. Watching on, on TV, reading books about. What, what is, where, where, where is our life related to what we're investing in? He said, seek first the kingdom of God. Can we say we are seeking first the kingdom? Or would we say that we are seeking our own kingdom first? And, and so that's a very searching thing for all of us. And we don't just arrive and get to where we're supposed to be and we're on cruise control. There's always that battle every day to think that there's some type of greater life out there than godliness with contentment. He gives us clarity in verse 7. He says, for we brought nothing into the world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. Now Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth can come in and destroy and thieves can come in and steal. He says, store up your treasures in heaven. As we like to say, send your wealth ahead by doing good, good works and being about his kingdom. And we're always fighting against that because this world's giving us message after message that this is what this life's about. To have a nice, roomy home, two new cars, vacations every year, all these things. And, and how can we think that that's necessarily what God has for us when he's calling us to godliness with contentment? If godliness and contentment, follow, following him wherever that leads, leads to those things, that's great. It can't be something that we seek after. What we do is we seek after him and be always willing to give and to share. The people that have the most fulfilling lives are those that are trying to be about eternity more and more instead of trying to be about temporal things more and more. But that's not a popular message. It's not going to hit the top 10 at the Christian bookstore. What you're going to see is your best life now. You're going to see other titles that talk about how to make your life the most prosperous, improved, successful life that you can possibly have. That's titillating to the ear. That's titillating to our flesh. But that's not God's word. God's word has to be the standard. And here he says, we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. The, the idea is, why spend your whole life trying to accumulate things? The old bumper sticker says, he who dies with the most toys wins. And I love the one that says, he who dies with the most toys still dies. <laughs> you know, we can't. We can't take it with us. And I, I posted a picture once on Facebook with a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. And I said, you'll never see this in, in real life because you can't take it with you. And so why would you spend your whole life investing in that? Francis Chan has this video where, where, where he has this long rope. And he, he paints just this little portion of the end of the rope red. And he says, pretend like this part of the rope, this little tiny piece, and this rope goes on for all eternity. P picture this little portion of this rope that's red is your life now. And all the things that are temporal and all the things that aren't going to carry on to eternity or have any difference related to the kingdom of God, 
That, that's this little section here that we spend our lives on. All our decisions, our money, our focus, all of that has to do with this little, this little portion of the rope. And then he says, people will tell you, you're crazy for focusing on the rest of the rope. And he, and he goes, you're, you're stupid for focusing on it. He goes, no, you're stupid because I'm focusing on the rest of this rope. And all eternity, all my rewards, everything that I'm being trusted with, all those things that are about eternity, I'm going to focus on those things because this is just this long related to the whole thing. And I, it was so powerful of an, of an illustration. But then he says the warning, but those who desire to be rich fall into the temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So here's, here's the warning here. Now first it's for Timothy. But it's also for us. Those who desire to be rich. So obviously, if you have a desire to be rich, I'm talking about apart from following what Christ has for you, doing, you know, sacrificing what you're calling, spending time in the things you should be spending time on and giving and all these things. If you desire to be rich, you fall in temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts. And look at the result, which drown men. Drown. That's a serious word. Drown. It's a warning word. Which drown men in destruction and perdition. Jesus talked about the, the parable of the soils. And those that had the deceitfulness of riches did not grow. There was no problem with the word of God, that the seed that was sown. The problem was men's hearts. And the ones that had the right heart produced a, 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 a crop, a big crop. And so he's saying here, we have to recognize that there's a trap for us. And so I've seen so many believers fall into this trap. They get involved in this thing and just start small. And then before you know it, it's what their whole life's about. And then uh, they just are unrecognizable. And that's, the, that's the, the risk that we face. Now he says in verse 10, for, though, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. He doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil. Notice he says the love of money. Money is an object. It's amoral. It's not good. It's not bad. It's just, it's just there. It's, just, it's neutral, basically. It could be used for great things. It could also be used for harmful things. But the love of money, that's what the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us about. The love of money is a root of all kinds, not the root of all evil, but the roots of all of kinds of all kinds of evil. And he says, some have strayed over the faith in greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. God's trying to warn us ahead of time. If you're a Christian, if you're a son or daughter of his, you've been adopted as a child of his, and you go after these things to the neglect of God's calling. I don't know how you can go after all these things and focus on those things when he says if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Take up his cross means to dying to self, dying to my will, dying to my plans, my agenda. And, and this is just as searching for me as any of you here, trust me. But it's important for us to realize we are not our own. Our lives have been bought with a price. So we're supposed to glorify God in every way based on how he's purchased us out of slavery. We don't just receive salvation and then get to live any way that we want to live. It's not up to us. That's not the deal. That's not the, what he signed, that's not what we signed up for, unless we misunderstood what we were signing up for. He says, follow me. If you go through the scriptures and the gospels where those people were wanting to follow him, it was pretty radical. Just leave everything, follow me. When he called the disciples, he called them. He didn't say where he was going. He didn't say what it was going to cost them. He didn't tell them all. I mean, it'd be nice if, I'm sure some of them would have appreciated that. Well, where are we going? Well, where, how long are we going to be there? What's it going to cost me? None of that. He just said, follow me. But there was, a, there was something by the Spirit that said, follow him. He, you can trust him wherever he goes. And that's the same for us. But we can leave that. And before you know it, we're following our own desires and our flesh and before you know it we're unrecognizable and we we pierce ourselves through with many sorrows now here's the contrast in verse 11 but you O man flee these things and pursue righteousness godliness faith love patience and gentleness look at the two verbs there in verse 11 flee and pursue it says flee these things i you know when we have to flee something we have to, we're realizing that it's, it's stronger than us. We'll get pulled in. It's not something we can withstand in our own strength. We run from it. 
When you see someone that's outgunned you or out, you know, uh, weaponed you or out whatever you, you take off, you run. And he says, flee, Timothy. The temptation of this is greater than what you can withstand. You need to flee from it. And then he says, when you flee, don't just flee, you know, aimlessly to nowhere. Go a direction. Go towards righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. How much of our lives are, are arranged to be pursuing these things versus other things? Ask, ask, our, ask yourself, what do I spend my time doing? All these things, what am I going after? Am I going after these things? And, you know, it's, it's interesting that this word of knowledge that the Lord gave earlier in the service had so much to do with this, it seems, because some of us are, are needing to hear that. I mean, maybe specific situations where it's very relevant, and that's why he gave that word of wisdom and word of knowledge. We all need to hear that. We all need to go towards these things. But it won't be easy. Look at verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. It's not going to be easy. The life of going after these things is not the life of faith. I like to live the life of walking by sight and call it the life of faith, but it's not. It's walking after my sinful nature. It's not walking after faith, but it, it's a fight. And, and Paul doesn't hide this from Timothy. He doesn't co- you know, paint this as something it's not. He says it's going to be a fight. This life, this, what God has called you to, is going to be a battle. He's going to tell him later to endure hardship as a good soldier. It's difficult. God's calling on our lives is very, very hard. Fight, not with my own strength, with his strength. Fight this good fight of faith and lay hold on eternal life. He's not saying Timothy isn't saved. He's saying live a life that's, that's in line with what's already happened in you. Because there is eternal life that we receive now, but there's also a fulfillment of that in, 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 when we get our new bodies. So live in such a way that lines up with your calling and, and give that good confession um, uh, in the, as you have in the presence of many witnesses. And then he brings God into this now in verse 13. He says, I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now he brings, now he's already done this. He says in the sight of God and the, and the holy angels, we've seen him in the last few weeks say, I commit these things or I charge you in the sight of of God and the angels and so forth. He's doing it again. He's saying God's watching your life and what your life is about and what you spend your, your time, talent, and treasure on. God's watching those things. And so he's saying, I urge you in God's sight to, 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 to have this, this, this walk of faith and this confession that you've made, have that live, lived out through your life. And so he says, just like the Lord Jesus who, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. I want to read to you from, from John chapter 18, when, when Jesus was before Pilate and made this confession about which he speaks. He says in chapter 18, verse 33, he says, Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? And Jesus answered, Here it is, his confession. You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. The word confess in Greek means to say the same thing that someone else says. Okay, so in, in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, when we're told to confess our sins, if, if we do that, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What he says in that verse is he's saying, agree with God that your sin is, is what it is. Agree with God that it's sinful, that you have sinned. And so he's saying this confession about Timothy, that Timothy's made a confession about being a Christian, walking in faith and all of that. And he's saying, hold to that. Not, not being concerned about the repercussions. And your example, Jesus. 
Because when he was before Pilate, he made that confession of the truth. And he agreed with the reality of what, you know, who he was in saying what he said to Pilate. He wasn't concerned about what was going to happen. He wasn't concerned. He held his confession no matter what the results would be. So this fight the good fight of faith and walk in these eternal things and not temporal things and not go after all these things that the world uh, is engaged in, that's a fight. And so you need to stand true to that confession that I am engaged in a fight and I am engaged in following Christ and no matter what the repercussions are regarding my life and the risk of not having all these things I'm going to stand firm in that fight that's what he's saying there and so Jesus is watching our lives and he says uh, what what's your life about what are you focusing on what what is your confession what does your life represent is it does it represent the fight the good fight of faith or does it represent going after all these things that is fighting against your calling so very important for us to see he continues in verse 14 that you keep this commandment without spot blameless until our lord jesus christ appearing now most people pass over that the, the term, the two words without spot there in verse 14, and the word blameless. That's how they would describe the lamb that was supposed to be sacrificed, without spot or blemish in the, in the Old Testament. And that was a picture of Jesus being without spot and blameless, which was fulfilled in him not ever sinning, being that perfect lamb that was going to be sacrificed for us. You can't have the guilty dying for the guilty. You have to have the innocent dying for the guilty. And so the imagery here is Timothy, you need to be a sacrifice. You need to keep these things perfectly. You need to watch out for these things and be careful. And it's a, it is a commandment there. He says in verse 14, to be without spot, blameless. And how long till we're, that we're supposed to do this? Until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing. So he's, gonna, he's going to come. And Paul wants Timothy and us to be thinking about that appearing that's going to happen. And he says in verse 15 that he will manifest this appearing in his own time. I wish Harold Camping would have read that. Um, and he who, he, uh, he who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. So he says, this is going to happen. Jesus is going to come. He's going to come and he has your life being a certain way, Timothy. You're supposed to lead God's people a certain way as being an example in investing in eternity and being about the kingdom of God and not investing in temporal things in this life, you know, your own kingdom. You need to be an example in that. You need to be without spot, without blemish. You need to be like a sacrifice is. And God's watching. And if you do that, you're going to live a life that's a blessed life. That's the wealthy life that he's called us to live, how he defines wealth. Because he says, if you're not faithful with unrighteous mammon, who will entrust you with true riches? We think that unrighteous mammon is true riches. And God says that's not true riches. It's not bad if it's used well. But true riches is spiritual influence. And he says that if you're not faithful with unrighteous mammon, no one's going to trust you with true wealth. True wealth is sowing into eternity to be spiritual influence in people's lives. All the things that God's called us to in being servants for him, he's saying that's true wealth. And so he says... That's what our lives need to be about. He's going to come back, Timothy, in his own time. We don't know when. He's going to come back. And when he does, he needs to find those that are being faithful, being about the kingdom, instead of being about their own kingdom. And then he breaks out into worship. He who is blessed and only potentate. So he's still on this theme of you know, Pontius Pilate. He was a potentate. There's only one true potentate. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Who alone, that is Jesus, verse 16, has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So he breaks out into worship, just thinking about that he's coming back for us. And he's going to give us rewards for how much we hoarded this world's resources on ourselves apart from God's calling. Nope. He's going to reward us based on what we did for him, for his kingdom. And not only those things, but our motivation for doing those things. Were, was this, those things done through our lives in love? Or were those things done out of selfishness or selfish gain or not being led by the Spirit? So we're going to stand before Jesus and have to give an account for that. That's a, that's a very sobering thing to think about. And so he wants us to keep that 
in mind. He says, verse 17, now he's dealing with the rich here. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, not to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So he's talking to the wealthy here. Now, do you consider yourself wealthy? Most of us probably wouldn't. In this, in this life, in this country, <laughs> we're very wealthy. We're, we would be considered ultra wealthy by the standards that they live by. Now, I know it's all relative to your country and all that, but we are very wealthy in, in, in many ways. So, so Paul's writing to Timothy, you need to tell these wealthy people this is how you should act. This is, this is what's supposed to happen in the church. That they're, they're not supposed to be haughty or proud or self-dependent or, you know, uh, prideful in how they are. But and not to trust in uncertain riches. Now, I noticed the word uncertain there. Uh, and it's very important for us to see because that's the opposite. We live our lives sometimes as if that word was not uncertain, but as if it was the word certain there. Do we not? We live our lives as if our riches are certain, that they're guaranteed to be there one day versus the next, and that they really will provide all the things that God hasn't intended for them to provide in our lives. And he says, don't trust in them. Trust in me. Don't. And so if we're spending all our time or a lot of our time in these things, we're living as if they are certain. We're living as if they will meet all these needs that God hasn't intended them to, to, to uh, meet. And he says, but we're supposed to trust in the living God. We serve a living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So he wants to make sure Timothy doesn't misunderstand here. Things that we have and, and, and how we're blessed by the Lord in, a, in an appropriate way, those things are for us to enjoy. We're not supposed to feel guilty for having nice things. That's not what Paul's trying to accomplish here by the Spirit. He's saying we shouldn't actively seek out those things to the neglect of the things that God has called us to focus on. And he, and he, but he says, enjoy what you have. Whatever God's blessed you with, enjoy it. Don't feel guilty. Enjoy those things. If you have, if you have great things and wonderful things and a lot of things or whatever, and, and, and God has led you to have those things, and he's blessed you by you doing the things that he wants you to do, great. Enjoy them. Don't feel guilty. Don't feel bad. But you're supposed to uh, do good with them, verse 18, and to be rich in good works through them. Because God has blessed us with resources and we're supposed to use those resources supremely for blessing others. I know that we spend it on ourselves. We have houses. We have cars. All that. That's fine. But think. But how much of those, those resources are being utilized for the kingdom? I'm not, this isn't a pitch for an offering. I'm not going to take an offering or, or anything like that. But I'm just saying our lives are supposed to be about the kingdom supremely. And so God's always working in us to use those things for his purposes, not to just hoard them on ourselves. So he says, be rich in good works, ready to give, ready to give, willing to share. What do we say to our kids when they have something that the other one doesn't have? Honey, you need to be willing to share this with your brother or your sister. And when they don't share, it hurts your heart. You want them to have a giving heart. And, it's, and where do we get that from? We get that from God. God wants us to have a giving heart. Jesus was good in works. He was ready to give. And he was willing to share, wasn't he? We can't be like Jesus if we're not those things. And so, you know, it, it's, just, it's just convicting all the way around. Let's just, let's just say that. Let's be honest. <laughs> Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. Again, giving these things away, being, having an open hand for God to put those things in and take those things out as he needs to, it, it, we're going to get rewards in heaven. And that foundation is going to be laid in the time to come. Those those words, time to come. That's what our life should be about. And it's hard. It's hard for me to focus on the time to come, the time to come. But he says that's what, that's what we should be engaged in. He closes in verse 20 and 21. O Timothy, Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So he comes to this, this last thing for this leader. Guard what was committed to your trust. He has a stewardship. We have a stewardship. We've been entrusted with things, financial, 
uh, gifts, spiritual gifts, influence, relationships, all those things. We've been entrusted to those things. Avoid, now for him it was avoiding these, these controversies about genealogies and about the law, about which he spoke in chapter 1. But for us it could be a lot of different things. Just things that aren't profitable, that don't line up with scripture. To avoid these things, avoid them like the plague as we like to say. Put these things aside. Take the weights and the sin that so easily ensnares us and run with perseverance. Focusing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And he says, if we don't, verse 21, those that engage in these things have strayed concerning the faith. And so there's a warning here. And that's what God really wants to drive home this morning. If we ignore these things, if we just say, you know what, I'm happy with my life. I like the way it is. Uh, I'm I'm just... Can, just happy just being how I am. I'm not interested in, in having these things that are about eternity be the most important things in my life and bearing fruit and, and the calling that's on my life, finding out what that is. Those, those people run a risk, all of us. We run a risk of our faith being damaged and, and to not be the type of person that God's called us to be, to not reach the people that he wants us to reach and to not glorify him. And worse yet of all, stumble people. Stumble people in our family, stumble people at our places of business, our work, stumble our relationships. God wants us to be a light. He wants us to be salt. He wants us to be influences in the body of Christ and beyond. We just had this baptism and we saw the fruit of great, a great work of God in people's lives. But we can be used by God to lead people to Christ, to help people grow in their walk so that they can come and you know, have this calling realized in their lives and, and all of that. But it takes us to be focusing on that which is eternal, not that which is temporal. He said the things that are temporal are seen, but the things that aren't seen are eternal. So he wants all of us, in this fellowship specifically, to focus on that which is eternal and seek after him. Jesus is the reward. He's not the means to a reward. He's it. He is the reward. We have him, and we need to worship him with our lives, with everything that we have. And it's a privilege to do it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this great book of 1 Timothy. We're grateful for all that we've learned and explored as we've gone through it verse by verse. Lord, bring all these things back to our remembrance, Lord. We thank you that your word is so amazing. It covers so much even beyond what we could even focus on during our time here on Sundays and and elsewhere. We pray that you'd use these lessons, Lord. And I pray, Lord, as we leave here today. You'd be on our hearts and speaking to us regarding our lives and what our lives are about matters. And I pray, Lord, that selfish ambition would be removed from our our lives in terms of it being the predominant thing that we're about in all of our hearts, Lord. Protect us from that. Help us to be about you and your kingdom and putting you first, and you'll add all these things that we need to our lives. We thank you for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen.